From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human Centered. Today on Human Centered, CASPIS faculty fellow James Holland-Jones, Associate Professor of Earth System Science at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford, interviews the legendary Richard Wrangham, the Ruth B. Moore Professor of Biological Anthropology at Harvard University and founder of the Kibali Chimpanzee Project. The two discuss the early days and development of the study of human evolutionary ecology, primate and human violence, how cooking made us human, and the value of evolutionary frameworks and interdisciplinary approaches to understanding human behavior. So, you know, this is for the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, and I, I figured I'd ask a few questions about the role of CASBIS and the characters associated with it in shaping research in biological anthropology, primatology. And by my reckoning, CASBIS is actually a pretty important place for primatology, sort of surprisingly, given that there haven't really been a lot of biological scientists evolutionary anthropologists at CASBIS for, you know, quite a long time now. But, you know, in, in, in 1962, 1963, right, there was a group that uh, Sherwood Washburn and, and uh, David Hamburg organized, right? And, of course, our old friend and mentor, Irv DeVore, was sort of central to that. Um, and they, they published that super influential volume, Primate Behavior, in 1965, that really sort of introduced the world to, you know, primatology as a thing to study and as, a, as a, an important plank, right, in, in biological and evolutionary anthropology, man the hunter, that sort of thing. Primatology was really uh, central to that. And what that book, I think, really represented primatology uh, to that generation for the next probably 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what is it, 21 years later, you reconvene there with your group, and out of that comes, again, this super influential volume, Primate Societies, which, you know, it's what got me hooked. Um, Excellent. I, in fact, have my, my copy from 1987 here. Yes. Um, and... Uh, you know, it, 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 that volume clearly influenced at least two generations of primatologists. And I guess to start with some actual questions, um, there are two key figures in this whole conversation that I, I'd like to talk about. Uh, Robert Hind and David Hamburg. Um, Hind was your PhD supervisor at Cambridge. And while he wasn't involved in any of the CASBIS um, primate years, I, I don't think, um, you know, he he had just a dizzying number of, of advisees and just a, this incredible sphere of influence on that that your whole generation and, and generations to follow. Um, and and I've always imagined what it was like to, for you and all this you know this incredibly uh, accomplished and 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 important group of ethologists and primatologists and you know, whatever, developmental psychologists sitting around a seminar table, kind of like the old bone room in the Peabody Museum where we had our seminars, right? What was that like? What was Hind like? And, and what was the, 
the intellectual environment of, of Cambridge and Mattingly, uh, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, early seventies in my case, early seventies. Yeah. Early to mid. Yeah. Uh, so I was there from 74 to 75. And what we're talking about is the, the sub department of animal behavior in the village of Mattingly, about three miles outside the university of Cambridge. I think the fact that it was a little um, sub-department in a village where, which was uh, isolated from the rest of the university was quite important because it meant that this was rather like a field camp. You know, the people who were there saw each other every day and didn't see anybody else. And it was a, um, it was a group that was utterly dominated by Robert in the sense that he was an extremely um, demanding advisor uh, who held everybody uh, to, to very high standards. You know, so there was this classic story about him that uh, all the graduate students who were there, or many of them, were so alarmed by the kinds of critical comments that he would make in seminars that they felt that they would really feel do sort of better, um, have more interchange among each other if they could meet without him. Pat McGuinness, uh, who was a, a researcher on sexual behavior of chimpanzees, uh, was elected to go and, and say this uh, to Robert. <laughs> and uh, so he, he went sort of slightly nervously to say, um, you, you know what, um, we'd like to have our own seminar, is that okay? And, and Robert listened and said, well, uh, let's have a meeting and talk about that. And so a few days later, there was a meeting and Robert said, I understand that some of you feel so intimidated by me that uh, you don't want to uh, meet in my presence. Uh, now, tell me, who, who wants to talk about that? So naturally, everybody was so intimidated that they <clears throat> didn't say anything and everything went on as before. Now, you, you know, that was kind of a, a, it was a fun story about him because it was said um, with great affection. And the affection came from the fact that everybody knew that uh, he was a very fair judge uh, and a very thoughtful commentator. And the reason he was, was that he was utterly on top of the field because in the late 60s, he had written a book called Animal Behavior, which integrated ethology in the tradition of Nico Tinbergen and Conrad Lorenz with psychology uh, in the tradition of people working with uh, rats mostly uh, so he, he was the arbiter dikendi. He, he was the, the person who really was in control of um, how to do really first class animal behavior work. So he was, of course, a, a fantastic person to have as an advisor. And he attracted really interesting people. Among them, of course, uh, famously, uh, Jane Goodall, and Diane Fossey. And since they were doing uh, the two uh, introductory studies to long-term research on respectively chimpanzees and gorillas, uh, they uh, themselves uh, became attractants for other people. The, the seminars were exciting because uh, there was a lot of just new information coming in from the field about what animals did uh, in the wild. And that basic information was grist to everybody's mill for thinking about why did they behave in this way? What was responsible for these species differences and so on. And um, the intrusion uh, in the early 70s 
of the ideas about evolutionary theory and its application to behavioral biology that came from uh, William Hamilton, Bill Hamilton, um, John Maynard Smith, uh, Robert Trivers, uh, and uh, Dick Alexander. You know, those four were really representing uh, this new wave. And Robert Hind was to some extent um, resisting uh, that intrusion. And so for students like me, it was a fascinating opportunity to integrate two kinds of theoretical perspective. And in the end, you know, Robert Hind uh, never really became comfortable with what at that time was called sociobiology, um, but more generally is uh, you know, evolutionary behavioral biology. Um, but uh, he remained on you know, very uh, comfortable terms talking about it with, with people like me to, to the end of his life uh, three or four years ago. And so in addition to Hind, I mean, obviously David Hamburg was, was pretty instrumental in a lot of this, and, and in particular, getting these groups together at CASBIS. Uh, how, did, how did Hamburg, and you know, so much of, of Hamburg's later career was, was dedicated to thinking about violence and conflict, and how, how did he influence you, or you influence him? Like, what, what, what was the dynamic there? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm delighted in the sense that you pick up on Hamburg, because these are the two greatest influences on me. And um, Hamburg was much less concerned with core theory and the details of animal behavior, much more concerned with big issues about integrating an understanding of, um, well, ultimately psychiatry, you know, because he was a psychiatrist. Um, but uh, leading to through from that to stress physiology and um, clinical psychology, integrating all those human aspects with um, the question of uh, where characteristics uh, that were particularly important for humans came from in an evolutionary basis. So he was a, a big picture thinker. And he was indeed very concerned with violence and aggression in later years. But uh, the, the time when Hamburg became really concerned about violence and aggression was following May 19th, 1975, which was the day when four students were kidnapped from Gombe National Park in Western Tanzania and taken uh, overnight uh, in a boat to the Congo across 20 miles of Lake Tanganyika and disappeared to the world. And three of those who were taken were students in an undergraduate program uh, from the Department of Human Biology, the program in human biology at Stanford, that uh, Hamburg had launched. And, you know, so this represented, of course, exactly what Hamburg wanted to do. He wanted to do human biology, integrating it with evolution, and to have students go and work with Jane Goodall, studying chimpanzees, was exactly the way that he thought people would get a fantastic education. And uh, the kidnapping of these students brought home to him the reality of um, the threat of uh, violence in a very, very personal way. And it came uh, within a year or within literally 15 months of the discovery in chimpanzees of lethal raiding by chimpanzees on their own species. 
which was itself a fantastic shock. You know, it was a huge shock because most of the way that people thought about the evolution of aggression at that time was that limited aggression was favored in the form of uh, competing against members of your own species. But Conrad Lorenz, the great authority, had written a book in which he said, uh, natural selection will not favor killing of your own species. And then chimpanzees, we see them killing first infants and then adults of their own species. And of course, since then, you know, since 1974, when the first kill was documented, uh, we now have um, dozens of such kills and we have, you know, we understand the pattern. But this came as a huge shock. And I just want to point out that uh, the way in which the Center for Advanced Study uh, was founded, I believe, uh, did have in its mission the aim particularly of understanding the kind of appalling upheaval that occurred during the Second World War. You know, this was, as I understand it, a response to that and saying, you know, how is it that human behavior could include these, these appalling aberrations? So that when Hamburg, as a, a fascinated by the center as an opportunity to integrate human and non-human behavioral biology, is then exposed to this kind of aggression first in animals and then in humans, well, you can see why he was thrilled to become president of the Carnegie Corporation and use his influence to really seriously advance the study of uh, violence and aggression, as well as, by the way, get very seriously involved in um, developing and modifying the kinds of political institutions uh, that are designed to suppress aggression, so suppress war. So he was an exciting person to be with. I mean, I, you know, I could go on for hours about him. Um, and, uh, and what I liked about him was, was the big picture. You know, I mean, but, but you know, Robert Hine, let, let me just add, you know, he had some big pictures there again. Uh, he, he was um, involved as uh, what co-president, I think, of the, um, the Pugwash uh, group, which was aimed at su uh, suppressing or, or controlling the spread of nuclear weapons. Uh, and four or five of the books he wrote were about uh, trying to control war. Um, looking back on your first trade book that I was around when it came out uh, as a grad student, uh, Demonic Males, would you characterize Demonic Males as a feminist work? Um, I know that you were disappointed by some of the criticisms of it as naturalizing violence or, or you know, sort of engaging in some sort of biological determinism. Um, but I know that you, and for what it's worth, I think very differently about this. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, so I, I guess that's the question. Yeah, and the answer is yes. You know, I do think of it as a feminist book because, um, because it uh, draws attention to the ways in which um, females of various species uh, are... Um, they, they have their interests in conflict with males and in humans. Uh, this leads to all sorts of things that uh, are, from a social and political perspective nowadays, um, rightly considered to be ethically wrong. Um, and uh, the, the evidence that I take for it being feminist um, is partly because of... Um, uh, people who have read it, uh, who are you know just very patent feminists who love it, uh, and uh, you know I've got a, 
a friend who helped implement the Violence Against Women Act uh, under the Clinton administration uh, and continues to be enormously involved in, in very practical aspects of feminism. She's, she's a lawyer, Diane Rosenfeld. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and we met and bonded over demonic males. Uh, and and that that really gives me cheer. You know, I think the people who have criticised it are people who are reacting, um, not really having read the book, but more uh, to the notion that any book that is going to talk about the evolutionary biology of male violence uh, is likely to be a bad book. Yeah. Well, that leads very nicely into this next question, which is another thing that really concerns me. Right, and and. Evolutionary approaches to human behavior often get what I see as extremely unsympathetic reads, and um, and you know that was the case with demonic males. It's the case with with you know any sort of um, any sort of work that makes it into the the broader uh, you know uh, ecosystem of 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 ideas. Um, and I think a big part of this is certainly internal academic politics within anthropology departments within the academy in general but i think there's more to it than that and this makes me think about my continuing bewilderment and perplexity the way that biological and evolutionary approaches to human behavior are interpreted by the broader public i feel like there's this persistent idea that evolutionary reasoning about human behavior is somehow politically reactionary and I find this so bizarre in, in no small measure because evolution is literally progressive, right? I mean, obviously, I don't mean in, in the sense that it's teleological, but in that the main outcome of natural selection is, uh, is adaptation. And adaptations are dynamic since environments are dynamic. The selective landscape is always changing and all that, right? And so, yet it seems really hard to shake this, this perception of evolution being reactionary. What is that about? What do, you, what do you think is going on there? And is it, is it a function of who ends up being the public face of evolution and human behavior? Is it a function of, is it actually just, you know, base politics? What, what's going on there? Yeah, I agree. It's fascinating. And it's a, it's a terrific issue to raise because it would be a, a wonderful problem to be able to solve better than than we do. And of course, the Center for Advanced Studies is the kind of place where you might hope that progress would be made. To me, the, the big thing is uh, these two strange words uh, that people don't have a good concept of what they mean, and that is biological determinism. That, you know, for most people, as soon as you hear the words uh, evolution, evolutionary theory, you know, human evolution, uh, they tend to think that an argument is being made that um, whatever you're talking about as having evolved, but particularly if it's behaviors that tend towards violence or nastiness of some kind, the accusation is, oh, this is biologically determinist. You're saying that these are behaviors that can never change. And there are so many ways in which one can challenge uh, that sort of argument. Um, you know, I, I came across, a, well, all, all sorts of... Uh, examples. I, I mean, the, the the basic point, of course, is that uh, everyone doing evolutionary theory recognizes that uh, what you're talking about is a biological framework uh, on which there is a superimposition of all sorts of cultural variation. And that doesn't mind, you know, it could be whether you're talking about um, eating, 
you know, where humans need a certain type of diet. But guess what? In different places and among different individuals, we all eat different things, we have different tastes and so on. Um, there, there is whatever area of behavior you take, there is no such thing as biological determinism as it exists in the minds of these critics. So why do they do intelligent people make the accusations of biological determinism? I think it's a fraudulent accusation. I mean, certainly in the minds of you know, very smart people like Stephen Jay Gould, who knew that it wasn't true, really. But it's a, an accusation that uh, is a piece of demagoguery. But it works. Yeah, I, I sometimes feel like uh, the criticisms are a bit of a Rorschach test. I'm like, uh, you know, they, they produce these sort of lurid fantasies of like what, what the implications of, of what someone who's saying very reasonable things, you know, uh, actually means. I was like, huh, I never would have imagined that in, <laughs> in a thousand years. Um, yeah, we're accused of imagining that that humans are robots, just you know, working out some very simple program, and obviously that's not the way humans behave. But it's a, it's just a frustrating accusation. Self domestication is a central theme that's run through your work, you know, starting with the you know the work in the '90s and demonic males, and then you're in your latest book. You note that humans display remarkably low levels of, of what you call reactive aggression and high levels of proactive aggression, and uh, that this is really the nature of the goodness paradox. Um, and you've gone in pretty hard with Chris Bame's execution hypothesis, and you know, namely that uh, predominantly men uh, who uh, who exhibited antisocial levels of reactive within group violence were effectively systematically. Um, Culled from their social groups, right? And um, we're certainly experiencing a moment politically and socially here in the U.S. and really throughout the world right now, rise of authoritarianism and uh, enormous amounts of, of, of social dissension. Many authors, myself included, have noted the broad breakdown of what, what we might call social capital or trust in societies. Um, and we have an increasingly aggressive political and social culture that seems to be dividing us further every day. What do, what are these ideas you've you've uh, championed of self domestication tell us about getting ourselves out of this mess? Uh, do do we are there are there practical ways to get us to get us forward into a more uh, pro social future? Well, I mean that that's uh, that's not a great question, you know, because it's obviously completely impossible to answer. Um, you know, it's it's a lovely question from the point of view of, um, uh, I think, uh, drawing attention to an area of investigation that has been, uh, to my mind, uh, astonishingly um, under uh, served, and 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 that is uh, that if we try and think about um the the problems of, uh, of of human conflict versus cooperation uh when people have thought about the evolution of of cooperation the great effort has been to simply understanding how people basically solve the prisoner's dilemma how is it that you can get people to cooperate without their cooperation being undermined uh, by uh, freeloaders 
Uh, and uh, that is fine, and it's an important question. But what it does not do is uh, take advantage of a huge and very obvious difference between humans and other species of ape, which is that in those other species, you have uh, bully males, alpha males, who impose their, their uh, physical force on others to get what they want. That doesn't happen in humans. And somehow in humans, our cooperative ability goes to not just figuring out how to solve the prison's dilemma, but also uh, it involves the evolution of an astonishingly repressed, inhibited, uh, unreactive, uh, tolerant psychology. You know, so uh, I think you have to study chimpanzees or gorillas or baboons to see just how appallingly males behave in species other than ours. You know, we are demonic in the sense that once we get coalitions together and have the opportunity to kill members of neighboring groups at very low cost to ourselves, we'll do it. That's demonic. But there is also this sense in which we're thoroughly undemonic, which is that uh, we can be walking about the streets and, uh, and greeting people and saying hello with very, very low risk that anyone's going to lose their temper. So this is a long way of saying that um, I do think that, uh, that this has been a, a, a problem that people just have not recognized as a problem from an evolutionary perspective. Now, you know, you might say, well, it's kind of a boring problem because the fact that we are actually rather tolerant and nice um, means that we don't have a, a, a practical issue in, uh, in dealing with that. You know, it doesn't, doesn't raise conflict. But on the other hand, it kind of underlies the, um, the power of the tribalistic dynamic. Because the fact that we can get together in these big groups and trust each other once we have the appropriate signals of you're in, in my group, they are in their group, uh, it means that you get these huge assemblages of, uh, of power uh, through just you know, large numbers of individuals. So none of this answers your very, very difficult question of you know, how do we use these these advances in understanding to uh, to solve the political problems. But, um, you know, I would say that, that um, there seems to be opportunities here. And uh, what I'm thinking about is that in 2019, the Leakey Foundation, which I think has always had some sort of um, connection to the Center for Advanced Study, at least it did through David Hamburg, um, they they organized a symposium on tribalism, taking multiple perspectives uh, from archaeological, uh, paleoanthropological, uh, evolutionary uh, theory through to uh, contemporary political science as represented by Frank Fukuyama. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that everybody there felt that there was an opportunity to, to bring together uh, these multiple perspectives on, you know, what some people might say is uh, uh, as important a problem as any. I mean, you know, climate change is important, but the, one of the reasons climate change is just desperate is because it's going to promote 
the potential for war. So I don't know, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll carry on thinking that uh, it, it's worthwhile to understand uh, human social tendencies for violence and cooperation in the desperate hope that, that uh, one day some leaders will be able to take advantage of, uh, of those breakthroughs in a positive way. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I do think it's really interesting. Like, people don't understand how weird humans are um, because they've never thought, you know, they, all they know are humans, right? Um, and, and, you know, I talk to students about this sometimes. And they're like, so you think that um, your dog has unconditional love for you, really? I, here's a little thought experiment. Get down when, it, when it's feeding time and, and eat out of your dog's bowl. Let's see how unconditional that love is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact that, you know, groups of unrelated males sit down together every day in the, in the dining halls of Stanford or Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge, right, and, and don't want to kill each other is, is kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, yeah, or, or don't just lose their tempers either. Right, it, at least it is for me. Every once in a while, I have one of these little flights of fancy thinking about that. Um, we're we're getting on towards the end here, but maybe, as we've said, uh, as I've said, we certainly seem to be having a moment. Um, and as you know, I'm I'm quite concerned right now about the future of humanity as a function of the way we're changing the planet. Um, but you know, looking back on the many lessons you've learned over the course of your illustrious career thinking about the future. Are you optimistic about the future of humanity? And if so, you know, what gives you hope for the future? Well, um, there's a Beatles song, isn't there? You know, one day the world will be as one. Uh, and it seems to me pretty clear that if you take a big picture about international relationships, uh, the the system that we have of uh, a whole series of nations uh, in conflict with each other uh, is too unstable uh, to have a long-term future. So you know, it, it's no good imagining a sort of George Orwell 1984 vision in which uh, you have three major powers, uh, uh, no two of which are sufficiently powerful together to defeat the other one. That there is no uh, evolutionary stability to uh, international conflict. So you, the, the future would depend on um, some alternative to that. And the obvious alternative uh, is uh, what many people have thought about, a single world government. And so I, I mentioned the Beatles, you know, one day the world will be as one, because uh, to some extent that's already happening. Uh, and, you know, the fantasy that we are going to unite in the face of uh, some visitors from outer space is being um, made real in the sense of uh, a, a fight against climate change, uh, which affects everybody. But uh, there are just huge problems on the way to achieving uh, any kind of world government. And then once you get it, there are huge problems towards um, making sure that the those in authority uh, do not abuse their power. Because 
you know, if there's one message that just haunts me about humans, it is just like every other animal that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The, you know, people often talk about climate change uh, as if the real technical, the real challenge is the technical challenge of, um, you know, finding a way to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and so on. And I, I've, my constant refrain is that's not a big challenge compared to the social challenge, the socio-political challenges of um, of integrating uh, conflict and cooperation uh, in this context. So you know, am I an optimist? Um, I'm quite sure that there's going to be some very nasty ups and downs before any kind of evolutionary stability is reached. And the trouble is that we don't have any models. Of evolutionary stability so you know uh, it's exciting that we are learning so much about what drives us as a species or as a series of populations um, but uh, it is still unclear as to whether or not we will fumble our way towards evolutionary stability i i can't let our conversation go without bringing up the topic of cooking. Um, but, you know, I don't have any specific questions about cooking. Can you tell us something cool about cooking? <laughs> well, what you're referring to is the fact that uh, I have argued that one cannot understand the evolution of the genus Homo from an Australopithecine ancestor uh, without crediting the Homo uh, with the ability to use fire. Uh, including cooking food. And uh, I published that idea robustly uh, in um, starting in 1999 uh, with you as a co-author. Um, and, um, and in 2009, a book that uh, took it to the wider world. And since then, um, as we both know, uh, the, uh, the age at which fire was supposedly found in the archaeological record um, has gone down, has gone you know, older, but it has not yet reached the time when you and I, I think, would like it to be, which is 1.9 million years ago. And I think it's on its way there. Um, the, it doesn't really matter exactly when it happened, although, you know, I do have a very, I, I would be very puzzled if it ever can be proven that it was not 1.9 million years ago. But uh, another angle on uh, the use of fire is the fact that this was the time when humans entered a different relationship to the world from every other species because they were exploiting fuel. And that exploitation of fuel uh, accelerated and uh, continues to accelerate. Uh, with its uh, immense impact on the world in the form nowadays of climate change. In other words, the thing that might destroy us as a species is the thing that gave rise to us as a genus. Yeah, funny how it works that way, isn't it? Yeah. It's a Greek tragedy. It is. Uh, let's hope we can turn it into a comedy. I'll have a, a good laugh when we look back on how close we were. You know, I, I just hope that the center um, continues its its mission and it maybe even develops its mission of uh, bringing people together uh, across uh, the different subfields. 
you know, it's all too easy for everybody to resort to their specialization rather than uh, get into the hard work of uh, integrating fields. And, you know, evolutionary theory, I mean, it's got its sort of slightly uh, crude aspects in the way that it was uh, first presented in terms of um, what it meant for the evolution of human behavior. But uh, I think that in the last 40 years, um, it's become much more sophisticated than it was in the 1970s. And it really earns, it's, you know, it's earned itself um, a very strong seat at the table of social science. And in fact, you know, really, I think that social science should not be taught in any university without giving a basic understanding of evolutionary theory, because this is, you know, the strong evolution, uh, the strong uh, theory that we have for human behavior. And without it, any theory will always be weaker. Thank you for the oh, you, you prepared so well, you, all these wonderful questions. That was James Holland Jones in conversation with Richard Brangham. You can learn more about this and other CASBIS events by visiting our website at casbs.stanford.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter, we're at CASBIS Stanford. The CASBIS live event series is still on a summer break, but we've got some great, terrific original interviews coming up with renowned fellows from CASBIS history. So be sure to follow us in your podcast app of choice. You won't want to miss those. Until next time, from everyone at CASBIS and the Human Centered team, thanks for listening.